Welcome to the Veterinary Success Podcast. I'm your host, Isaiah Douglas. Today, I have Carson Taylor, who is the co-founder and partner of Vet Value. And Vet Value is rethinking practice valuation services for the benefit of independent practice owners with a goal of improving efficiency, accuracy, and my favorite thing, which is actionable intelligence, because it's great to have a ton of data, but what do you do with that data? And so with that, Carson, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me and appreciate the nice intro. Absolutely. And I love seeing websites that are very clear and articulate their mission. And I think yours does that very well. And there's so many different websites like, what the heck do these people actually do? And I think it's very, very clear who you serve, why you do what you do. Yeah. So let's jump into the focus of the discussion, which is around practice valuations in the world of veterinary medicine. And one thing that always astonishes me is the amount of practice owners that don't understand what their business is truly worth. Do you have any insights or thoughts from your experience of why so many practice owners have really a lack of understanding of why the value of their practice is what it is or the value drivers? Anything that you can shed some light there? Yeah. Well, I think there are a lot of different elements going into it. First and foremost, a lot of the veterinarians that own clinics are clinicians. They don't have training in business. They didn't go to business school. They went to school to become veterinarians. And that's primarily what they're focused on. The topics that you might learn in business school that would give you a sense of how you think about valuation for a small business are not anything that they've been trained on. I think secondly, there's not a lot of focus from investment banks or really good advisors on such small businesses. There are a ton of small businesses out in the U.S. of which veterinary clinics are kind of a subset. I was at RBC. I was an investment banker on Wall Street prior to this. We we would never look at providing services for small businesses. As we deemed it, there was no money there. And so we would never help out a small business owner. And most of the Wall Street banks look at things the same. And I think the last element is that there's a lot of work required to properly value a business. You have to collect data. You have to go through data. There's work and it takes time. And the time costs money. People with the kind of skills that can appropriately appraise or value a business, they have to spend years to kind of learn those skills and their services don't come cheap. And so there isn't quite a solution that really fits the budget of the small business owner that gives you an effective valuation because businesses are complicated to value. Everyone is a little bit different, much more complicated than valuing a piece of real estate in most cases. And you can't do the appraisal process the same way you might value a piece of real estate. So those, I think, are kind of the three main things yeah, and an interesting stat that I'd seen from Biz Equity, which does kind of valuations on a ton of different businesses, but 10% of small business owners actually understand the value of their business, which to me is probably pretty accurate when you look at those within veterinary medicine as far as understanding truly what are the evaluation metrics and how would someone value that business. And you shared a little bit about being an investment banker at RBC, which is a interesting lens to come and look at practice valuations in veterinary medicine. But can you share kind of the history? And then you mentioned there's not any money in veterinary medicine as far as from an investment bank perspective. But how did you even get into thinking about practice valuations in veterinary medicine? I know you shared that story when we talked offline, but I'd love to hear your background and history on that. So my first job out of college was at a software company. That's important because I work at a software company now. We made software for financial institutions. But after a while, I kind of got 
a little bit bored of that and I wanted to pick up more marketable skills, thought I wanted to go into finance like our clients. So I went to business school, ended up going into investment banking. Now, investment banking can mean a lot of different things. At every investment bank, you have a commercial lending operation, you have a trading and sales. For me, investment banking, what I did was traditional corporate finance, which is mergers and acquisitions. IPOs and raising debt capital for corporate clients all in the healthcare area. And over time, I focused on healthcare services companies, which were just more interesting to me. Services companies were more interesting to me. And in those travels, I worked with a client called Capna. They hired us to sell their company, which was 50 veterinary practices. And we ended up selling it to BCA and it was a very good outcome. And I learned a lot about the industry working on that particular deal. And so something that occurred to me was that the industry was rapidly consolidating. There was a lot of private equity money coming into the industry, backing consolidators. And almost to a T, the growth model of those companies was in part based on acquisitions of buying individual practices, putting them into the larger business, trying to realize either cost synergies or in some cases, revenue synergies from the combination. But the other thing occurred to me, aside from the point we mentioned earlier, that kind of the level of business education varies from veterinarian to veterinarian, not just education, but actually interest in business topics, was that a lot of veterinarians really didn't have a lot of experience selling practices, valuing their practices, and rightfully so. It's something you might only do once over the course of their career. A lot of people hire experts to help them through that process, though a lot of veterinarians actually weren't hiring experts. They were selling their practices on their own or with the help of a trusted lawyer to a private equity-backed consolidator. Now, I'd worked with a lot of private equity firms at RBC Capital Markets, and I know that they are very sharp, and they all know how to do deals, and that's what they do. They're deal makers, deal guys. They know all the tricks for finding good deals, papering, and closing the deals. And so to me, it just seemed on the face of things that that wasn't a fair situation. You have a veterinarian and a local lawyer negotiating a practice sale once in a lifetime transaction with a private equity-backed consolidator. In every case, the consolidator is going to get the better deal. And the better deal means not only maybe paying less than what that practice is worth, but also getting better terms than the veterinary might be aware of that they're giving up. And so investment bank, I learned a lot there, but I felt like I was kind of ready to go out onto my own, do something entrepreneurial, be my own boss. And I thought in veterinary services, there was a really distinct need for good advisory services, you know, people who know how to do deals and are willing to represent independent veterinarians and as well as really good valuation services that kind of fit the budget of small business owners and are useful that are going to kind of reveal some of these topics that are going to show people who are thinking about a sale that there's some art to the sale process that just because your practice might be valued a certain way doesn't mean you'll get that if you go to sell. And so that's what we've tried to do when we set up two businesses to go after that market and try and fix that problem so that veterinarians who do choose to sell are getting the best prices and what they deserve for a life's work of honest and good medicine. Yeah. So I guess the follow-up question to that is, so what is a better process than just going to the person that you know down the street that maybe has done a business transaction for a neighbor, but not anyone in veterinary medicine? So you kind of shared with me what you believe is the best way to go out and see the valuation of, okay, this is what it's worth, but this is actually getting the full price that you should for, again, 
the hard work that you put into this thing, the blood, sweat and tears. Can you walk through what that looks like and why you think that makes sense? Well, firstly, with the valuation, what we knew as investment bankers, we'd get hired to sell businesses, right? And before, as you're getting engaged to do that, you would present valuation thoughts to the client. You'd come up with comps in the market. You'd do some fundamental analysis and you'd say, this is what we think it's worth. But you understood and the client understood that what it's worth is actually what you can sell it for in the right kind of process in the open market. And that price might be very different than what a valuation would suggest because you have a number of different parties with kind of a different view on what the company is, what can drive value going forward. And that market view is very likely going to converge on a different price than what one individual can come up with looking at the facts that are available in the market. And so that's pretty key insight when you think about selling a small business. A lot of small businesses are sold through business brokers, which that process in a lot of ways is more akin to how you might sell a house or a boat. I had a boat last year. I owned it with a friend. He had twins. I had a kid. So we had to sell the boat. And so we went to a broker and he said, okay, I'm going to charge you 10% for this. He found one buyer and we sold the buyer to that boat. Now, a boat, you can look at a blue book. You can look at things that are going to give you a pretty good sense of what the market is. Same with a house. But a small business, they're different enough that there's no blue book for veterinary practices out there. And they're all going to be a little bit different. And so the best way to sell the practice is to find some level of what we call market price discovery in that you show certain information on that practice to enough market participants that the best price and the best terms kind of come out of that discovery process. And there's some art to doing that, right? You have to round up the right buyers. You have to run them through sort of a stepwise process where they know that they're in competition with other buyers and you have to give them good and timely information at the right time. So that is more akin to say, selling something on eBay, right? eBay has structured auctions. Now, eBay is not selling businesses, but they're selling certain items through kind of a structured auction. And so that is a better way to sell a small business, in my opinion, than the brokerage approach, which is either you list it at a price, and if someone hits that price, you sell it to them, or you kind of have it out there and you piecewise approach buyer after buyer and see if they want to buy it. You want to run through that structured auction, and there's a lot of art to doing that. And so that's kind of why I think that would be a better process and is a better process for selling small businesses such as veterinary clinics. Makes perfect sense. And I yeah appreciate that. The idea of the structured auction process. I like the eBay analogy because I think most people can understand, ooh, that makes a lot of sense. Like competition is going to give you a better price. If I know that there's three or four people that all want this thing, whether it's a veterinary clinic, whether it's a Michael Jordan signed rookie card, like the more buyers you bring, the higher the price you're going to get on that. So it makes a ton of sense. One of the things I wanted to ask too is what's frustrating to you about how a lot of valuations are done today in the industry? I know you've seen a lot of that and some of the things that you're doing at Vet Value is solving that, but can you talk a little bit about some of the things that you've seen historically that maybe aren't as applicable today? Yeah. And I'll use a parallel. At an investment bank, if there's a deal, you advise a client to sell and it's a public company, there's a lot of regulation and rigor that goes into that. And one of the things that is guided by regulation is something called a fairness opinion, which is an opinion you issue to the board advising that what they're selling at, the price they're selling at is fair based on certain 
analysis that you've done. And now over time, that analysis has more or less been guided by the courts. The courts have basically told you the analysis you have to do. And if you don't do that analysis, then your opinion is going to get challenged and you're going to get sued. In business school, though, we learn there's a lot of art to valuation. Like every situation is a little different. And there's a lot of theory and a lot of different ways that theory can be applied. And yet we got to investment bank and had to learn, forget all of that and just apply the valuation in this court mandated way. I think in small business and appraisal, you see something somewhat similar in that you have these kind of appraisal standards and the name of what they are in veterinary escapes me, but it's like a small business appraisal and you go and get a certification and this is how you do it. You just do it in this straight and narrow fashion according to these certifications and the certifications don't really change as the market changes. Those certifications were made before you had a lot of private equity firms buying individual veterinary practices. And also the certification is in part designed to protect the vendors of the valuations, right? It's designed to protect the practitioners so their barriers to entry to jump into the market, less designed to result in a product that's very useful to the person who purchases it. So that's kind of what I don't like. And another pet peeve is that there are a lot of parties providing valuations are claiming to that really are doing it to sell you another service. Let me use it. If you go on to a certain consolidator's website, they'll offer free valuations. Well, they're offering that valuation so they can get some information on your practice to figure out if they want to buy it. They're not in the business of providing you a valuation. They're in the business of providing practices. And I think brokers are somewhat a hybrid approach because ultimately they want to list your practice and sell it. So the valuation goes into kind of determining that list price. And ultimately, the motivation, if you have a list price, is to make it low so you can get the deal done fast. And so they're also not really independent. So those are kind of my two pet peeves. You have these standards that were established and don't really reflect the realities of the market and also protect the practitioners. Then you have people in the market that are kind of pretending to do valuations, but really just want to collect your information and do something else with you. Yeah. So using valuation metrics as a lead generation. I mean, that makes sense. I mean, for them, it's getting them to the point where they can identify, okay, who's interested and how can we go out and make an offer that may or may not be fair for the work that's done. But hey, if they've maybe not engaged with someone that's helping them get a true valuation done, maybe we can pick this up for less than what it's actually worth. And that is an interesting approach. I know that, you know, talked about the idea of independent practice owners and seeing just the world of consolidation and big checks being written by private equity and all this money coming into the space. It's not coming into the space because it's a bad industry. And I always remind people that are in the industry, like there's the reason that so many dollars are flooding in is because there's a lot of value to be unlocked in veterinary medicine. How would you talk to or think about from someone that wants to be an owner that is a current veterinarian? How do they position themselves to compete in something like this? Because like you talked about, there's a lot of really sharp deal makers that work at these private equity firms that have backed some of the big consolidators. It seems to me like that is certainly an uphill battle, but there still has to be some opportunity. Are there practices that are more suited to private transactions and those that won't be? I just would love to kind of hear your opinion on that. Well, the consolidators are largely focused on larger practices, multi three, three plus doctor practices. They're focused on those because they tend to be more stable. If you buy a practice and you're not the owner and practicing medicine, what happens when a doctor leaves, right? If that happens, things can go sideways very quickly. So they prefer larger practices with more stability. 
which helps to de-risk those transactions. Now, there are a lot of practices out there, probably the majority that are one or two doctor. And those practices are not really something that private equity back consolidators are looking at today. So if you are a practitioner, that's where you can buy at a really low basis and build something that you could sell later on for a lot if you're able to grow that practice and add doctors. So that would be, I think, my advice. Go look in your market for a doctor who's operating solo or somebody who's got two doctors there. You're ready to kind of inject some new blood in there and try some new strategies. I mean, the other thing, though, you need is some operating experience. You want to have tried different things. We have a client who was formerly at Banfield and learned a number of things there, but then set out on his own. And then prior to doing that, he had owned his own practice and learned some things there. And then finally, he set out on his own and really got things right that third time. So you have to have some experience. I think doing relief work could be helpful too, because you travel to different practices so you can get a broad perspective on how practices are run. You can see what they're doing right and you see what they're doing wrong. Short of that, it would be helpful, I think, to have a mentor, someone who runs a really successful practice and you can learn from them. So I guess those would be my pieces of advice. You know, it's not going to be easy, but I think it is doable for people that are interested in owning the business. Though note, the deck is somewhat stacked against you. You know, I mentioned you buy a one doctor practice and seek to hire another doctor. Well, these consolidators are hiring doctors right out of school, right? They're showing up at every vet school and they're trying to recruit doctors right out of school. So they can pour a lot more resources into that than you. So like I said, it's not impossible, but I think it's becoming increasingly difficult just as the consolidators gain more traction in the market. Yeah. And especially coming out of school and I can see the benefits of having health insurance all the other things that they can offer where a lot of times a private practice can't offer the same level of those benefits. And that is attractive, especially to someone that is looking at the ability to pay back student loan debt or other things. Obviously, those that listen to the podcast know I'm a huge fan of practice ownership. I really liked what you shared is if you can find the one to two doctor practice, start acquiring those, or maybe you roll them up into something that is bigger over time. And if you're entrepreneurial, I think that could be one option. And I know that was something that you chatted on with me as well. Well, right. That's your biggest advantage, I guess, is you could buy a practice and the doctor could leave and you're fine because you can continue to see patients. So that is an advantage that these consolidators don't have. They do not want doctors to leave unless it's kind of a scheduled transition. So that gives you more flexibility and you can buy smaller practices that are not going to be interesting to the consolidators. Yep. So just kind of going and hunting in a or fishing in a different pond than where they're at. Just look at the opportunity set that they aren't going to want to go discover. And you can certainly find probably some good opportunities. I wanted to ask just a little bit, if I'm a doctor that's owned my practice for a while, just what are the terms of the deal structure going through kind of the auction process for a lot of consolidators. Can you shed some light on what those look like? Again, I know every deal is unique and put all the qualifiers that you need to on it, but just from a high level, what do a lot of those look like? Because from what I've seen is, hey, we have a big check. We can pay you X, Y, Z. You're going to stay here for a certain amount of years. There's going to be a holdback. There's going to be certain things that you need to hit, but I'd love to see or hear more from you on what you've seen in the marketplace. Yeah. What I've seen runs the gamut, but If you want to break it down, the first element is the consideration. There might be some cash there. There probably will be some cash, but there's probably 
another part in there that might be you get some equity in the consolidator or you form a new JV with the consolidator and you own a part of that. And so that approach, there's a lot of difference in the approach people use. Some tend to lead with only cash. Others will want JV in every case. Others will be willing to offer equity in the consolidator, but they might not lead with that. And so those components tend to vary. And it's really kind of an issue, I think, of of what you want as a seller, right? If you're going to ride off into the sunset, you want all cash. If you're going to stay with your practice and continue to grow it, that JV structure might be a good way to look at things. Though there are some peculiarities, right? The JV, you only own part of it. So what happens when that consolidator is sold down the road for that part that you own, you're going to sell it then? What do you get then? You know, So that is something that I think a lot of times isn't included in a initial indication, but it's very important to think about because that price down the road could be you get the price that the consolidator sold at less a little bit, or you get a fixed multiple that's lower than what you sold at. There's a lot of value that you can gain or lose by thinking of that. And then finally, with respect to the equity piece of the consideration, if you are going to join the company and continue working there, and it's a really big company, your ability to drive any value in the equity of that large company is really limited. So if they're offering you equity in the company, you want to think about, well, do I have any ability to drive that value? And what's it going to look like for me? So it really kind of depends on the, I guess, goals and objectives of the veterinarian, how you look at the consideration. And yeah, there are other parts, I think, that are important in the deal. There is sometimes a hold back. Is that going to be something that the buyer just holds? Or are they going to put it in escrow? What is the quantity there? How much are they going to hold back? What are the fundamental or general representations look like? A lot of times the fundamental reps expand rapidly and ones that should be considered general move into that fundamental list. And then the terms of the employment agreement, how long are you going to be locked up? What's the geographic part of that? And then how much are you going to get paid as an employee? Are you going to get 21% of production? Will you get 22? Will you get 20? All of these things are really important. And so it's really important to kind of flesh all of these out while you have leverage. After you accept an LOI, you don't have any leverage. But if you're looking at a couple different LOIs, you want to make sure that you have someone who can help you flesh out all the details up front and get everything kind of agreed on before you accept an LOI while you have leverage. And that's, I think, why it pays to hire an advisor like myself. Your lawyer isn't really designed to do that. The lawyer is there to paper up the deal that you select, but you need someone that can help you see around corners and negotiate those finer points if you really want to get a good deal. And also to kind of advocate for you to communicate to the buyers, this is what our client wants over time. Our client wants to continue with the platform. They're experiencing a lot of growth today. So this is how we're thinking about the structure. This is what he would prefer. This is the second piece. You need someone who can communicate that effectively and knows all the ins and outs of it. So there's quite a bit to it. Does that answer your question? Anything you want to dig in on? Yeah, I was going to say just for clarification. So JV is joint venture. And then from the piece on the LOI and the negotiation, the leverage, Can you talk about how you've seen someone be able to use a little bit of leverage or when it's been gone after they've accepted it? Because I think that's a key piece is trying to come into it and understand what it is that you ultimately want. I think your point is excellent. 
do you want to stay there? Do you want to be able to move? Do you just want the maximum amount of money? Are you looking at net after all the taxes are there? I think there's so much that goes into that decision that, again, if you've never done this before, you did it one time and it was a long time ago when you were a buyer versus a seller, it's a completely different process. So I think the leverage, especially dealing with consolidators, I'd love to understand a little bit more around that. The issue is that no buyer wants to pay any more than they have to to acquire your practice. And so what they have to pay might be very different from what the practice is worth. If you're talking to a single buyer and they give you an indication and you don't talk to anyone else and you sell at that indication, guess what? They just offered you something that is probably way less than what your practice is worth for you. They need to know, I need to put my best foot forward here because there are other parties that are looking at this and we're all marching down the path at the same time. And this practice is going to get sold. And so if I don't put my best foot forward here, if I don't put a bid together that reflects what this practice is actually worth to me, someone else is going to buy it and I'm not going to get it. So that's what we call competitive tension. And we would do that at RBC and all the other investment banks. When they sell a company, they run this process and the process is designed to build that competitive tension to let the buyers know, look, this is going to get sold. If it's worth a lot to you, you better reflect that because if you don't, it's going to go to somebody else. And so that competitive tension builds up leverage for the advisor, right? You can say, look, we're exploring our objectives here. I've decided as the owner that I'd like to exit to transition. I'm talking to a number of different parties. We're giving them all similar information. And I would like to get an LOI from you by this date. And after that date, we're going to pick a party and we're going to go and I'm going to end up selling to that party. And so that conveys that message to the buyers. Okay, this practice is going to get sold. There are other people looking at it. I can't afford to leave money on the table if I actually want to own this. If I come with a bid that's way less than what this is worth to me, it's very likely that someone else is going to take a different view and win that deal. And so that's really the leverage. And the leverage you have is from the moment you start those kinds of conversations until the moment you accept an LOI. So once you accept an LOI, your options are, okay, we didn't talk about this term that now you want in the LOI and you're talking to the buyer. I don't like that. So your option at that point is you either accept some kind of negotiated or retrade, what we call it. you accept different terms in exchange to get what you want, or you can go back and approach all those buyers again and run through the process again. So you want to make sure everything's kind of cleared up before you get to that point. And that's when you have the most leverage is before you accept that LOI. Now, if you really want good LOIs, you've got to be careful about how you go from when you begin the process to that LOI. Everyone's got to have kind of the same information. It's got to be good information that allows them to really understand what the practice is and how much it's worth. You can't just kind of give everybody different stuff over a long period of time and not have all your numbers ticked and tied and not answer questions. You have to be very systematic and make sure that people are getting the same information and that the numbers are tight and the message is on point and consistent. And so again, that's another area where it helps to have someone who's been through it before, like that art of how you deal with the buyers, how you talk to them, what you give to them, when all of that stuff is learned. And it's not something that you're going to learn unless you're doing m a It does. And I was just thinking of a couple different questions through that. So I guess the first is, and this is something that I find funny when people talk about valuations and kind of where the industry is. I'd love to hear your answer. 
if someone asked, what are the multiples that a veterinary practice is being sold today? What would you say? It's a pretty broad range. And it depends on the growth, like the valuation, what it's worth, which remember might be very different than where it's sold, depends on the growth and size and a couple other factors, the market, a couple factors can kind of determine a practice that is worth more than another. It's a bigger practice. This one has 10 docs. This one has two docs. This one's in Florida. This one's in Hartford, Connecticut, where I'm from. That's why I'm picking on Hartford. Those factors are going to differentiate value from one practice to another. But where that practice sold is a function of what I was saying before, what the buyers are willing to pay. And they're not going to be willing to pay necessarily what the practice is worth unless they have to. If they can get it for less, they'd much prefer. But you know, I would say for high growth practices that have three plus doctors, I think if you're not getting 10 times, you're not getting a good deal, at least 10 times even done. I think that can go higher. Now, it varies for smaller practices. You go down, those multiples are going to go down and depending on the location and growth. But the days where five to six EBITDA was a good offer are done. You shouldn't even look at anyone who puts an offer like that to you if you've got more than two or three doctors. And also, though, I throw around terms like EBITDA. And EBITDA is a little more complicated, I think, than most people appreciate. Usually what happens is the buyers will call They'll be calling on a practice and they'll say, Hey, you know, we'd love to buy you. We have all these benefits in our platform. And then the seller says, No, I'm not ready to sell. I'm not ready to sell. Okay, I'm ready to sell. And so the buyer says, Okay, send me your QuickBooks. And they do that. And then the buyer says, Okay, this is what your EBITDA is. And therefore, this is how we're valuing your practice. Okay, you just let them calculate your EBITDA. Why don't you calculate your own EBITDA? You tell them what it is. You know your practice better than they know it. The EBITDA they're looking for is not simply a formulaic calculation from your financial statements. EBITDA, earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, amortization, is a formula. I could calculate that with someone's financial statements in five minutes. What they're looking for is EBITDA as a proxy to normalize cash flow in the business. Right? They want to estimate what is kind of the normal steady state cash flow profile of this business today. And to estimate that, there's a lot of subjectivity. There are a lot of things that you might see or know that they don't know. There are a lot of things you can identify that make that number very different than what a buyer might come up with on their own if you just send them their financial statements. And so that's kind of a long answer to the question, but there's a lot to it, I think. Yeah. And I was actually going to ask about EBITDA and kind of get your opinion on it. And that was perfect because that was another area where I was going to go because you hear people talk about these multiples and it's so difficult to say, okay, is that applicable to me? And when you see the value drivers and what you see is more attractive or less attractive, can you pinpoint anything outside of higher growth doctors? Like, is there specific demographics? I mean, is there anything else from a value driver? If I'm sitting here and thinking, I want to sell my practice in the next couple of years, what can I be doing? What can I be thinking about to pretty up that practice, I guess, you know, to make it as attractive as possible to a potential acquirer. Yeah, I think the number one thing you can do is drive additional growth. And some cases that might require hiring an additional doctor. In some cases, it might not. It might require a different approach to your operations. You know, are you getting the most from your doctors? Or are they spending time doing things that say a tech could do? What kind of production are you getting 
out of your doctors. That'll kind of feed into your growth, what we call, say, you could call maybe that organic growth for a veterinary practice, whereas inorganic would be if I have to go and add another doctor. The state of your facility also matters. You know, if you've got an expansion that would be fruitful or renovation, you might want to think about doing that or undertaking. You don't have to finish it necessarily, but you at least want to get it started. And then the other thing I think that we didn't mention is maybe how do your customers view your practice? You know, do you have a lot of happy customers? If you do, you want to make sure that you can kind of demonstrate that. Are they doing reviews? Are they giving you feedback? Those, in addition to the items we mentioned before, I think are pretty helpful. Now, I've got some more specific things I could recommend, but it's a long conversation and, you know, it's going to depend on the circumstance. But we're not necessarily business consultants, but we hear and see things as we go along. And we're happy to talk to anyone who's got questions if they reach out to us. Yeah, absolutely. And again, long format podcasts are great, but you can't answer every question. You have to try to say, hey, this is kind of the low-hanging fruit, do this, but then there's additional things depending on the circumstances that are there. One other thing that we talked about, I think is really interesting, is just when I go to sell my clinic, hospital, practice, the cost and net-net what I keep, that's what ultimately is most important. So you got to think about taxes, you got to think about these other things, but just purely the cost to sell it and working with someone, that to me is another area that maybe doesn't get discussed as much. Can you kind of shed some light on what you've seen, historically what it's looked like, and what the world looks like today? Well, the costs kind of are in a couple different buckets from the owner's perspective. You have costs paid to your legal counsel or other advisors, of which a sales agent would be in the other advisor bucket. Then you have time costs. How much time do you have to spend dealing with this process? And there is a cost there because that could take you away from seeing patients which provides revenue to your clinic. So it's very hard to estimate the opportunity cost. It's not really something people think about, but it is very real. But with the cost with advisors, there are a number of councils who do these deals for kind of a fixed fee. There are some that do not. I mean, the quality of legal representation varies pretty significantly. And you might find that if you get a good deal, but you don't get good quality, it actually can become more expensive to you. Either you've gotten the lawyer didn't do a good job of helping you kind of get the terms you were looking for, or if they charge by the hour, you've just spent a lot more hours because the lawyer doesn't have experience doing these kinds of deals and focuses on the things that aren't important to you. So if you're interested in minimizing your legal costs, you got to think of it along those lines. One, there's a quality of service provided, and I want to make sure that I've got someone who's done this many, many times, has a lot of experience, and is ready to advocate for me. Doesn't necessarily work for the buyer. They work for me. And then there's another element that goes into that. Is your legal counsel doing things that they shouldn't be doing? They're there to paper up the deal you negotiate. They're not there to negotiate the deal. And you definitely don't want them, if they're paid by the hour, doing the diligence that results after an LOI. So if you want to control your legal costs and you want the best possible outcome there, find someone who's done a lot of business that you can trust and keep them in a box. Give them a specific set of tasks, the things that you're hiring them to do, and don't ask them to do things that you're not hiring them to do. Now, with the advisor, the advisor is a little different because they get paid really only if you close a deal, the transition advisor. So 
they're at least on the face of things, they're incented to get you to a deal. But the devil is in the details with that. That broker I mentioned who sold their boat, that 10%, he's getting 10% whether he gives us a good deal. And if he brings a deal that's going to get us $5 more, he doesn't like that's nothing to him. He'd rather close that deal fast. He doesn't want to wait six months for a deal that might give us $5,000 more. He'd rather close that deal today and move on to the next thing. Whereas we'd be better off perhaps waiting six months for that deal that's just worth a little bit more. So kind of those flat fees, I think, for brokerage don't quite capture. They don't quite provide the right incentive because you want the broker or what we call the advisor, I don't like the term broker, to bring you a good deal, not just any deal, a good deal. And so you should think about fees kind of incentivizing somebody to do that. And that's going to be more than just a simple flat fee. And I don't really want to discuss fee structures in too much detail here, but think about that. Think about what those fees incent your advisor to do. And I think part of the reason these advisory fees are kind of high today, or part of the reason I got charged 10% to sell boat, which probably took probably about three hours of this guy's time, is when you sell a small business, it's a lot of work to do it right. I mean, you really have to dig in. You have to go through all the numbers. You have to look at all the documents. You have to tick and tie things. You have to compile marketing documents. It's a lot of work. And so the fees kind of reflect that work or should reflect that work. Now, in the case of my broker, 10% was the market standard. So that's what I got charged. Everyone was charging 10%. I don't think the service was worth what I paid for him. And you do see some of that, I think, in small business brokerage. Hopefully that answers the question. And I talk about this with financial advisors in like my world. There's people that charge a lot and are worth every penny because of the expertise and the skills that they bring to the table. And there are people that charge a lot just because you know they think they can do that and they're terrible. And there's people that charge a lot less that do a great job. And there's people that charge a lot less that don't know what they're doing. So it's really hard as a consumer to go out and judge, is this person adequately intelligent and skilled enough to help me through this? But I think finding people that have had experience in that industry, going through the process, seeing someone else say, oh yeah, we did this. This is how it worked. This is how we've helped peers like yours and just asking those questions. And again, you don't have to say, oh, I have to get it for the least amount of money. I don't think that's the key, but just understanding, like you talked about, the incentive structure behind it, what you are paying, as long as they are clear, transparent, and understand what they're doing, find a team that makes sense. Find someone that you enjoy working with, that you trust and like. Because at the end of the day, you don't want to pay someone that you can't stand. They might be the best person in the world, but if you don't like that person, you probably pay them. So I think, yeah, there are some other things to go there, but yeah, I think just having clarity. And I have that conversation all the time with people. They want to understand, am I getting value for what I'm paying? And the answer should be yes at the end of it. Well, here's how private equity firms would hire advisors to sell their businesses. And this could be instructive if you want to think about it. So private equity firms would have over time relationships with 10 investment banks over time. So they buy a company day one, they're going to sell it five years from now. You know, Day two, they bring in five of those investment bankers who have some expertise in the industry that the company's in. And they start talking, hey, what should we do with this? Can we buy this company? What do you think of that company? Day 65, they have the same conversation. You know, A year later, the same conversation. So five years down the road, they've developed the relationship with somebody who could potentially sell the company. They run what we called a bake-off or beauty contest, where they ask all the banks to present their credentials for selling the business. And you come in, you spend a ton of time, late nights, sometimes all-nighters, 
putting together this presentation that's changed a thousand times. And then you go in and you present it and say, here's how we would sell this company. Here's how it's worth. Here's are the buyers we approach. These are all the things that we would do. And they see those presentations. They think about, they meet the team. They think about the relationship they've formed, the interactions they've had. And on the basis of that, they select who they think would do the best job. And then they negotiate the fees. And so that is an instructive example. I mean, it allows you to establish whether you're going to be able to work with someone, whether they know what they're talking about, whether they're trustworthy, and whether they're going to do a good job. So private equity, they know what they're doing when it comes to buying and selling companies. And if you can do the things that they're going to do, that's kind of what you should do because they lead and they're experts at that. Say what anything else you want about them, but they are definitely experts at buying, selling, and owning companies. Yep. I love that idea of the bake-off or the beauty contest, just that analogy and thinking through how to evaluate everybody. So I appreciate that. As we wrap up, I always kind of ask just soapbox topic. It can be relevant to today's conversation. Obviously, it's going to be something that you're working on within the veterinary medicine space, but anything that we maybe didn't touch on that you think is like really important that you just want to get out so that people can understand this specific topic and what your opinion of it is, or if we've already touched on it, you can rehash something, but I just like to give you a little bit of time to riff on whatever you would like. Yeah, I want to go back to valuation. We talked about not a lot of small business owners, veterinarians included, get regular valuations. And it is my belief that doing a regular valuation, if it's the right valuation, can give you a lot of perspective on what you're doing with your business and help you do some strategic planning. Now, the right valuation is not going to be an appraisal that costs $5,000. That's not within the budget of a small business owner. But if you can find something that's a lot cheaper, if there's product in market, and this is the product we've tried to design, something that takes a lot less of your time and something that takes a lot less of your money, but can still give you those kind of key takeaways. And so our sincere hope is that over time, more veterinarians will kind of see doing a regular valuation as something that can help their practice and that the right price can be a very good thing to do periodically. And we hope that over time, that's going to kind of raise the prospects for independent veterinarians, help them become much more business and sale process literate so that they stop selling for less than they're worth. I love it. I don't think you could have a better way to wind down the episode than trying to help encourage people to understand, hey, this is the biggest asset that you have. This is going to dictate a lot of the successes or failures of being able to have a lifestyle in retirement and be able to quit working someday to make work optional. And if you don't understand the valuation of the business, it's like being an associate your whole life and saving into your 401k and then retiring and saying, well, hopefully there's enough money in there that I can live on. And I feel like that's what so many people are doing right now. They need to understand what it is that they can be doing to continue to develop and grow this asset that will help their family be able to do a lot of great things. And I talk about it all the time in this podcast. It's money is a tool. It is not something that you just have to collect a lot of it just to have a lot of it. You can do a lot of things with that. You alone yourself as the seller of that can decide where that money goes and how you want to spend it. But you should be, like you said, adequately compensated for the blood, sweat and tears that you put into this thing for years. So I love that answer. If people listen to this, they're interested. I'm going to link to everything in the show notes as well. But how do they reach out? How do they understand more about who you are, your partners, your business? Feel free to plug all those different areas that you're at. Yeah, you can check out our website at vetvalue.pet. We're kind of on the forefront of using the other than .com, which you can do now. Vetvalue.pet, some information there, as well as access to our valuation calculators. You can find us 
on LinkedIn, vetvalue.pet. We have a company page or you can find me on LinkedIn, Carson Taylor. And then we've also set up a Facebook page, vetvalue.pet. Take a look. You'll find information and you'll find some contact information through those routes if you want to reach out and have a discussion. We're happy to do free consultations with any independent veterinarian at any time. I love it. Thank you, Carson, for coming on, sharing your knowledge and wisdom. And from someone that's done a lot of deals over the course of their career, and I love what you're doing and bringing into the space to help people get a fair shake on the valuation of their business to make sure that they can see the, the fruits of the labor at the end of the day. So thank you. And I appreciate all the information that you shared today. Yeah, great to talk to you. And thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to today's show. The comments made on today's show should not be taken as investment, tax, or legal advice. All comments are for educational purposes only. You should consult your team before implementing anything. Isaiah Douglas is a partner of Vincere Wealth Management. Isaiah is registered in the state of Indiana, California, Texas. The biggest compliment you can give to this podcast is to share it with a friend. Reviews help the show get found, and Apple Podcasts is the platform that predominantly is how people listen to the show. If you have three to five minutes, you like the show, please head over to Apple Podcasts, give us an honest rating and review. That'll help more people find the show. For all of today's links and information, head over to veterinariansuccesspodcast.com. There you can subscribe via your favorite podcast platform so you won't miss another episode. Finally, if you'd like more information, insights, and have the ability for your voice to be heard and interact with show guests, join the private Facebook group. You can go to the Veterinary Success Podcast on Facebook or head over to the veterinariansuccesspodcast.com. Scroll all the way to the bottom where it says about your host and then click on the Facebook icon. That'll bring you into the Facebook group. I'll approve you. You'll be in. And then I'd love to hear your questions, feedback, and anything that you'd like to see added to the show. So with all that, thank you so much for listening. I'll be talking again to you soon.